this will be a uh, quick and short podcast, and we are going to try a new uh, thing uh, to supplement our educational offerings, but will be available to anyone who wants to listen. And we're going to call this Morning Report, and we're going to focus on some cases that really highlight uh, things that are of importance to understand for neurology residents. So, Jeff, I think you have a case uh, to present to me, so I'm introducing Jeff Dewey. Uh, assistant Professor of Neurology, and my name's Jeremy Moeller, and I think we'll get started. Jeff, tell me about your case. I have a case of a 29-year-old woman who was sent to me for evaluation of a left foot drop. She's uh, 29 years old, she's otherwise healthy, and she was sent to me by an orthopedist uh, who she had seen for this left foot drop. Uh, it occurred uh, at least a few months before she saw me. This was in the outpatient setting, uh, and basically said that she had uh, been sitting on the couch one night and then uh, really can't identify any triggers, but noticed that uh, the next day when she got up out of bed, uh, her left foot was weak and floppy. Did she have any numbness? Uh, it wasn't entirely clear. Uh, she thought maybe that there was some uh, numbness on the top of the foot, but it wasn't a prominent feature of her presentation. Yeah, I'm just wondering uh, about the differential diagnosis for a foot drop, and uh, sometimes numbness can help us with uh, with that. And uh, Jeff, you and I have talked about before in the exam preparation uh, podcast about some of the major considerations uh, in terms of differential diagnosis for foot drop. Um, maybe I'll talk through a couple of those as my understanding, and then you can correct me if I'm wrong. But sort of the big ones I would be thinking about moving from proximally to distally would be an L5 radiculopathy, so a problem with the L5 nerve root. Uh, there could be a sciatic neuropathy. Uh, and then a perineal neuropathy at uh, various places. So those are kind of the three that I'm thinking about. And the reason I was asking about the numbness is that might be able to tell us uh, some of the differentiating factors in terms of symptoms. Um, I guess theoretically, if there's sort of more broad-based uh, weakness, then we can think about central nervous system problems, either spinal cord problems or midline brain problem in the primary motor cortex. Uh, it's also possible to get a foot drop with a more diffuse or multifocal uh, process like motor neuron disease, um, but but uh, the differential remains broad. It is also important to consider the time to onset of the foot drop after we sort out some of the localization. So can you tell me a little bit about the time course? Yeah, and uh, well, the caveat here is she saw me a few months after this episode, so some of it is based on her recollection, but it was fairly acute in onset. I mean, she went to bed normal and then woke up and it was essentially at its worst. It did actually improve spontaneously over time. And at the time that she presented for my evaluation, she really had no further symptoms. So it was a little difficult to see a direct uh, distribution of things. There was clearly no pain. And I think that's probably worth mentioning. Uh, certainly no burning neuropathic pain. Uh, and of course, she denies any other uh, symptoms in the leg. She has no history of back pain in terms of the other things you're thinking about on your differential. Bowel or bladder problems, of course, would be important. Yep, no bowel or bladder problems. Any history of any neurological problems in the past? So she said this happened to her once before. And again, the circumstances weren't entirely clear. It was uh, in 2008, so about uh, 11 years before I met her. But she does remember that she was about 18 years old at the time, and she uh, had been watching a movie on the couch, and she tends to sit with her left leg sort of folded under her, uh, and her right leg crossed over the top. So you can imagine somebody with maybe one leg hanging off the couch and one sort of under their butt. Um, so she had her left leg folded under her, uh, was watching a movie. And then when she stood up again the next day, she really had a lot of trouble uh, maintaining her uh, weight on that foot. And where the foot was dropping and she was sort of tripping over it when she walked. Uh, because that does suggest 
uh, the possibility of compressive neuropathies, which uh, raises all sorts of uh, uh, possibilities in terms of differential diagnosis. Any history of disorders that would predispose her to uh, focal neuropathies? And I'm thinking about uh, B12 deficiency, uh, diabetes, thyroid disorders, pregnancy, anything like that? No, she actually has a fairly pristine health record, and she's never been pregnant. Uh, and in terms of her past medical history, medications, uh, social history, anything relevant that we need to think about? Nothing there, uh, and really has no family okay. history of anything. And I questioned her pretty heavily, uh, just given you know some of the things on this differential, but really nothing in the family as far as other neurologic symptoms, no musculoskeletal uh, syndromes that run in the family, early weakness, uh, recurrent neuropathies, anything like that. Do you want to walk us through her neurological examination? It is entirely unremarkable. Uh, and I looked into a few things relevant to your differential. So her cranial nerve exam is uh, totally normal. She has no color desaturation in either eye. Her visual acuity is uh, 20-20, bilaterally wearing her corrective lenses. Uh, eye movements are normal. The rest of her cranial nerves are intact. She has no apparent loss of muscle bulk, no abnormal tone, no fasciculations. Uh, and of course, I examined the, the foot in particular, but really that goes for the whole uh, body. And her strength is full throughout, including all directions of ankle motion uh, in both feet. Her sensory exam is intact. Her reflexes are two plus throughout with downgoing toes and negative Hoffman's reflexes. Uh, she has a normal cerebellar exam and a normal gait. So the... Um... The muscles I'm particularly interested in would be things like the extensor digitorum brevis muscle and intrinsic foot muscle, which is sometimes uh, atrophic if you have uh, problems either with the, uh, a number of peripheral nerves or with the perineal nerve. Uh, any loss of bulk there? No, the foot intrinsics looked good. So this is really a problem that seems to have completely resolved. Uh, so there was yes. a transient foot drop, and now her problem is completely resolved. Yes, and, and she did come with one piece of data, uh, which was a uh, MRI of the lumbar spine that had been obtained around the time of symptom onset. And there was one uh, desiccated disc at the L4-5 level with some small central protrusion, but nothing affecting the nerve roots or the nerve, uh, the neural foramina. I think my suspicion for something like an L5 radiculopathy would be low uh, in the absence of pain, in the absence of radicular symptoms. Uh, and although radiculopathies can resolve spontaneously, uh, that seems less likely. Uh, disorders of the motor nerve seem unlikely because most of those are uh, progressive uh, and uh, and she has recovered completely. A sciatic neuropathy, I guess, is theoretically possible, but that's pretty rare for a young person with no medical history to develop uh, unless there was a structural abnormality, a, a trauma, uh, infiltrative process, etc. And that really does leave us with the possibility that the foot drop was related to a perineal neuropathy. And then you did give us the history of her having a similar type of situation that was clearly related to compression. So really, I'm starting to think about a disorder uh, that is associated with recurrent compressive neuropathies. And and the one that, that I would be interested in thinking about would be HNPP, so hereditary neuropathy with liability to pressure palsies. Um, and the reason I'm thinking about that as opposed to uh, other disorders, which could also give you intermittent uh, focal weaknesses, is because of that story of the of the compression. So at this point, uh, we could consider genetic testing, but uh, the other thing that I think would be interesting is uh, is looking at the EMG, and maybe you can talk me through the EMG. Yeah, so I think you have the pictures in front of you as well, but and we can post these for our, our listeners. 
but the EMG was actually pretty striking. Uh, I was not expecting it. And uh, as a neuromuscular neurologist, I got a little bit excited uh, during the EMG. So uh, we can start with her sensory uh, nerve conduction study table. Really, the thing that jumps out to, I think, anyone who looks at it is that she has uh, diffusely slow conduction velocities across all the nerves. And we looked at nerves in the right arm uh, and the bilateral legs. So we looked at the right median ulnar and radial antidromic studies. We did a bilateral sural study, uh, and we did a left superficial perineal study as well. In retrospect, I'm not quite sure why I didn't do the right superficial perineal, though I suspect the findings would have been similar. Uh, normal velocities for these in the upper extremities is greater than 45 to 50, depending on the lab, uh, and in the lower extremities is greater than about 40. Uh, in her study, she had velocities uh, ranging in the 30 to 40 meter per second range in every sensory nerve we tested. And actually, that held true for the motor uh, studies, or the majority of the motor studies as well. So again, looking at the right upper extremity, the median ulnar nerves, and then the bilateral lower extremities, we did the perineal nerves, the extensor digitorum brevis, uh, and the tibial nerves uh, to the abductor halysis, abductor halysis, excuse me. And the majority of these velocities were either low or borderline normal. Uh, and again, in the high 30 to low 40 meter per second range. We, uh, you know, when you see this, you always wonder about a distal. Uh, neuropathy. And so I did look at the right perineal nerve to the tibialis anterior, since that was the side that she thought might have been affected in the most recent one. It was actually a little unclear, but uh, her velocity there was 38. So that indicates that this is both a proximal and distal uh, problem. And it really looks demyelinating. I mean, these are the axonal changes were few and far between. Really, the only places I saw any decreased amplitudes were on uh, the sensory studies in the median ulnar nerve across the wrist. And this could indicate you know, secondary axonal changes from demyelination at those sites or superimposed entrapment neuropathies at the wrist. Did you we see did any evidence of uh, conduction uh, block? No, and that's, I think, important to note. You know, something you always wonder in a case like this. Uh, you mentioned the possibility of motor neuropathies, uh, more diffuse motor neuropathies, and one that could look similar would be multifocal motor neuropathy. But as a rule, you find conduction block, at least in some sites, in that disorder, and she had no conduction block anywhere. Uh, on the morphology of her nerve conduction studies, she also had no obvious temporal dispersion. So what what was the next step that you took? Uh, I Just for uh, completeness sake, we did do a limited uh, electromyography needle exam and she had no spontaneous activity and normal uh, muat morphologies and recruitment uh, across all the muscles tested. Some of those were distal muscles, although I really just focused on one lower extremity to sort of round out this picture. And basically all that told me was that uh, while she has a demyelinating uh, sensory motor neuropathy, it was not severe enough to cause uh, any neurogenic changes in her muscle recruitment and certainly no denervation in any of the muscles tested. So, I mean, at this point, you know, I, I like you, I was sort of honed in on this clinical history of acute onset recurrent focal mononeuropathies, uh, notably that were painless and with, really without prominent sensory symptoms, although, again, this was all historical uh, and a normal examination suggesting total recovery uh, of both instances. And like you pointed out, at least one was clearly related to compression. When I sort of pushed her, uh, hopefully without suggesting anything, she said, well, yeah, you know, I do kind of always sit with my legs like that, and it's possible that before this second episode, I was also sitting on my leg. I was playing a lot of video games the night before. So again, this is somebody who's had recurrent compressive, probably entrapment neuropathies. Uh, and as you said, uh, the perineal nerve is fairly vulnerable at the fibular head. So crossing her legs like that would certainly put her at risk for compression, especially if she had an underlying predisposition. 
So like you, I was thinking about, uh, could this actually be a congenital syndrome, in particular HNPP? And so my next step in this case was actually to send genetic tests. And so the gene, so as sent- I remember, is a deletion of the PMP22, the peripheral myelin protein 22 gene. And so you're looking specifically for point deletions in that in that gene, right? Exactly. And so, you know, that gene is usually tested as part of a Charcot-Marie tooth panel because it is uh, also related to CMT1A, which is a, del- a duplication in the PMP22 gene. So the panels now that are available can look for both at the same time. Uh, And that was what I sent. And in fact, uh, a few weeks later, we got it back and she did have a uh, heterozygous deletion of the PMP22 gene. Do you want to fill us in a little bit on uh, on the teaching points and maybe summary of uh, HNPP? So our diagnosis is hereditary neuropathy with liability to pressure palsies. And again, what I'd love to hear is a summary sort of of the clinical presentation, why this patient fit, and then any treatment considerations. Yeah. So, you know, HNPP is kind of a zebra, but in the right clinical context, it actually makes a lot of sense as something to be high on your differential. And again, that context is somebody who usually is a fairly young adult by the time they're presenting and has had uh, multiple episodes, sometimes even only their, their herald episode of episodic acute onset focal mononeuropathy. And these can be sensory and or motor, uh, or sensory motor, uh, but are typically not painful and often have this prodrome of either prolonged compression. Uh, you can also see it just upon awakening, which suggests compression during sleep, uh, or patients who are doing repeat exercise, something with, for instance, flexion extension of the elbow can put tension on the ulnar nerve uh, in the cubital fossa or cubital tunnel, or uh, somebody who's been stretching, doing some extreme form of stretching that actually stretches the nerve itself along with the muscles. Uh, on exam, if you catch them during an episode, you're going to see something consistent with a focal mononeuropathy, and ideally, you can localize that to a common entrapment site. So things like the uh, cubital tunnel, the carpal tunnel, at the fibular head, uh, or in the spiral glo- groove of the humerus are probably the most common. You can occasionally see compressive plexopathies, but unlike your typical idiopathic plexopathy, these are not preceded by pain. So again, that painless feature is really differentiating. If you're lucky, you can actually feel an enlargement of the nerve. Now, this is called a tenaculum, and it, it represents aberrant rehealing of myelin in an area that uh, was compressed. These are usually very visible in ultrasound as well. This is one great place to use nerve ultrasound. If you see somebody in between episodes, they'll often look entirely normal. Much like a patient with CMT, you can sometimes see uh, exaggerated arches of the feet or pes cavus, but it's less common in HNPP than it is in the Charcot-Marie Tooth Syndrome. And the diagnosis is often electrophysiologic. Really basic serologies have no role here, uh, but on the nerve conduction studies, you'll see diffuse changes of demyelination. Conduction block is not a defining feature uh, because this is a diffuse myelin problem, not focal acquired uh, myelin issues. Uh, and nerve biopsy uh, can be confirmatory, uh, in which case you'll see disorganized or multilayered myelin, often having that onion bulb appearance that's described. Uh, of uh, repeat demyelination and remyelination in disorganized fashion. Uh, definitive diagnosis, though, is always genetic. You know, nerve biopsy is really not used in these cases very often. You put somebody, obviously, they're going to have numbness distal to the site of biopsy, which in a young adult, you're putting them for decades of annoying foot numbness. Uh, and really, genetics are so reliable that uh, even nerve biopsy findings are nonspecific compared to a genetic diagnosis. Something to consider when you have a young person uh, with recurrent focal pressure neuropathies. As you said, the EMG findings of sort of diffuse or multifocal demyelinating changes 
are important. We have to be aware of the onion bulbing on biopsy, but if you have a genetic test, then that is usually necessary to confirm the diagnosis. And then, of course, the gene with HNPP. I, mean, I want to add, you, know, you asked about treatment. Uh, there is no treatment in this case, right? So it really is lifestyle counseling for the patients, and they should avoid things that could lead the average person to compressive neuropathies. And also, you do want to do some basic genetic counseling. This is not a disabling disease, but it is transmitted in an autosomal dominant fashion, and so they should know the risk of their child having this syndrome as well. All right. Well, let's do this again. I think this has been a great uh, morning report, and we can keep going as we go.